Good morning. How are you all doing today? All right. So it is my pleasure to be with you all. I, it's probably a little bit weird seeing me up here, because where have I been most of the past, I don't know, nine months? Uh, I've hardly been here since the last time I taught last winter. Uh, three and a half, almost four months on the border. Uh, but over two months out in the field this fall. Uh, would have been three months, but then we, we, had a, we lost a soldier. I think I told you guys about that. Uh, and so I had to do a lot of triage with that. Uh, wh- one of my really good friends from the unit is here, Dahlia, uh, back there sitting next to Lindsay. Uh, she, she drove with me for many of those 10,000 miles down on the border. Her and one other uh, female lieutenant in our unit uh, became really good friends through that. Uh, again, it's wonderful to be with you all. So if some of you are new since the last time I was here, uh, my name is Stephen Roberts. I am not on staff here. I am a chaplain at JBLM. I spent most of my time in my ministry past as both a reserve chaplain and an evangelist within the church. So I'm very much at home within the church too. And even as an army chaplain, and since my calling is that of a wingman to pastors. I'm not a, the solo pastor. Uh, I am not a church-based pastor. I'm the one... I'm a shepherd of lost sheep. My heart is for engaging people who are wrestling and struggling outside of the church and trying to welcome them in, into the sheepfold. So that is who I am. It's my pleasure to be with you. Last year, when I did a series, the series was on engaging the culture. I tried to paint you a picture of where the culture is at nowadays and why. So the history that broke, broke apart where people are at psychologically, sociologically, the breakdown of community, all these various trend lines, and then talked about how we actually go about engaging these hearts. This time around, and I'll be here for the majority of the next two months teaching, I'll be teaching on how to engage or dissect the human heart, how to take the scalpel to the individual human heart and try to really effectively engage people. So tentative outline uh, for these upcoming lessons. So today, I'm going to talk about how you are each a Christian counselor and why that is so important. So both the case and the need for your involvement in the culture. I want to lay the foundation, because none of you are going to want to take the scalpel to people's hearts if you don't actually see the need or the reason for it. In coming weeks, what I hope to go through, is kind of take it step by step. Next week, uh, helping people connect to their past and their present. Uh, The next time I'm up, helping people unearth their hidden religion, because we all have a hidden religion. After that, examining their hidden religion. So let's start breaking it apart and seeing how it's actually working. Most people end up in my office uh, over at JBLM because whatever their practical religion is, which they are often unaware of, it's failing them. So we break that down. The next lesson after that, making the case for Christianity. How only God's truth, only the Bible, can make sense of this world and its brokenness and can offer us hope both amidst this broken world and with our broken hearts. And how exactly we do that with other people. And finally, Lord willing, I think the last lesson will be something along the lines of servant, not savior. Drawing boundaries and preventing burnout. So how we remember in all of this that we ourselves are not Jesus. And when we get that confused, how it messes us up. But before I get started, why don't I go ahead and lead us in a word of prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to gather with all these friends. We 
have known the scalpel upon our own hearts as King Jesus has come to us and convicted us of our sin and brought us unto himself. It's a painful journey, a blessed journey. Help us, Lord, to better understand what it means to have your scalpel at work in our own hearts and how in your name, with your love, to apply that scalpel to the heart of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read you a quick passage from Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. Jesus and the rich young ruler. And I actually used this when I was last out in the field in Yakima uh, just about a month ago. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What I love about this passage is how Jesus, our Lord and Savior, applied the scalpel to this man's heart. This man, man wanted to know. He wanted to know, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus didn't give him easy answers. Uh, Jesus didn't teach him ten, uh, ten principles for better living. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I can't imagine what it would be like to stand under that gaze. He looked at him and loved him. And then he brought the scalpel to bear upon that one area of his heart that needed to be unearthed and exposed. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. The problem is not that this man was rich. Not at all. Some of the most wonderful, godly people I know are incredibly rich. It's not that he's rich. The problem is that that's his idol. That's his practical religion. That's what stands between him and the Lord Jesus Christ. If he really wants to know eternal life, then though it's painful, he had to have that peace exposed that thing that was his practical Jesus. And Jesus, because he loved him, said, here it is. This obscures, this pile of wealth, the accumulation of power, this obscures your view of the salvation that could be had in me. And so he says, go and sell your possessions, and then come, follow me. The two go hand in hand. They got to topple the old savior, the false idol, to embrace the real Savior. And truly, Jesus met the mark here. This man, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. Jesus applying the scalpel to this man's heart, unearthing what it was that he was living for, what it was that was ultimately not going to satisfy him, that was not going to bring him life in this life or in the next. And he unearthed it and said, go, and then come. The case I'd like to make to you all today is that as Christians, we are all called to be counselors. Now, let me qualify that in numerous ways. Uh, You remember last year, I said, as one body, we are called to three fundamental things in church life. As one body, with all with different gifts, we're called to worship, we're called to fellowship, 
we're called outreach. And so we bring our many diverse gifts from, from our many diverse backgrounds, and we bring them before the Lord in worship. And then we share those gifts with one another. Again, a whole diverse array of gifts, all of us offering something different. Some are ears, some are eyes, some are feet, some are hands. But we also are called to do the same thing in outreach. We are all called to reach out to our neighbors, uh, to our community, to our culture. Not all in the same way, and I tried to clear that up last year. We're not all called to be street preachers. In fact, I don't think that's particularly useful nowadays anyways. We all bring our different gifts to bear in this community project of outreach as one body. And while we all have very different gifts, I would say that there is a shared calling amongst all of us with regard to reaching out to the culture, and that is counseling. We are all called to counsel, not just in the culture at large, but also within the church. Uh, maybe this will make more sense if I nuance this a bit. I'm not saying you're all, you all are called to be professional counselors. Uh, you're not all called to get your degrees in counseling. You're not uh, all called to diagnose uh, people's disorders or prescribe medications. But you are called to counsel. Let's start, for example, here within the church. All that one-anothering you hear about in Scripture, what are we doing? Like, when we care for one another in the body, is it just meals on a meal train? That's important, right? But Jesus was never content with just the physical, but just the material. He was always going after the heart. And we are called to do the same within this body. We're called to engage each other's hearts on a very deep level. How can you spur one another on toward love and good deeds if you do not first know what's going on in each other's hearts? Uh, you have to understand each other's hearts. And Paul often expresses that when he is counseling churches, he is unearthing all these various needs, these sin struggles, these patterns of suffering, uh, the growth and grace he's seen, and he's putting these all out on the table, and then he's engaging them. When he engages Timothy, it's with an intimate knowledge of Timothy's heart, his timidity, his fear, his youth, his immaturity. And he's engaging those deep parts of Timothy and encouraging him on. This is a fundamental role of believers within the church, is to counsel one another. Uh, old theologians used to call this uh, the private means of grace, as opposed to the public means of grace up here, the private means of grace. We do this for one another. Uh, it's, it's different, in a sense, in the way we are shepherded from the pastor and from the elders. But it's still vital to the healthy life of a church. So, for example, uh, when Lindsay and I could use marriage counseling, which I'm very happy to receive and not ashamed at all uh, to go get marriage counseling, we go to Pastor Brett, and we go to him for marriage counseling. But there's times when we don't necessarily need to go to our pastor here for that counseling. We simply need a little bit of good advice for a friend from a friend. So maybe you go to Charlie and Sarah Montes and say, hey, we've been fighting a little bit recently. We know that you guys have a similar struggle here. Uh, do you have any wisdom to offer us or any encouragement? The pr uh, private means of grace. We all do that for one another. Uh, a lot of you have already done that for each other. You do that to your, with your spouses. You do that with your children. You do that with your parents. You do that with one another. So hopefully the point makes sense, makes sense there. We are called to counsel one another but we're also called to do the same with our neighbor. When, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, it's the second of the two greatest commandments. What does he mean? Does he mean merely to feed the hungry, the clothe the poor, the poor, to visit the suffering in jail? All that, again, important. But remember, Jesus was never content to leave it on the physical material level. 
Loving your neighbor means engaging their hearts. It means doing this one another. It's different than you do in the church. Uh, You don't start by appealing to scripture. Uh, But you still nonetheless need to engage these broken and hurting hearts throughout the culture. Does that make sense? So I would say that's a shared calling for all of us. Now let me talk to you about one of the problems we're facing here. So let's switch tacks for a moment and uh, talk about why counselors are popular and Christians are not in our culture. So the latest Barna survey says 42% of Americans have seen counselors. Another 34% are willing to see a counselor. So three quarters of our culture. Uh, 23% refuse to ever see a counselor. But you all know, if you are not a millennial or a Gen Xer, uh, if you were, let's say, 40, 50 and above, these stats right here are way different than when you were growing up. Counseling was seen as a really weird thing that only really sick people went to. But now most of our culture is up for it. And the generation gap is huge. So here's what we're looking at. 21% of millennials actively see a counselor. Actively see a counselor. 16% of Gen Xers. 8% of boomers. 1% of elders. So those above the baby boom generation. Look at that gap dramatic how things have changed. And I have a possible explanation for that gap. I can't prove it, but a possible explanation, which also explains the current popularity of counseling. Most of our external supports, faith, family, community, have steadily eroded. Uh, we, need such, we need these supports. We need them to uh, counter our loneliness, have our thoughts understood, our feelings validated, our wounds healed, our healthy patterns, or have healthy patterns created, life's deepest questions addressed. But there's few old men out there nowadays ready and willing to throw an arm over your shoulder. So we turn to counselors instead. And it makes sense. You no longer can go to your parents in our culture. You can no longer go to people in your community most people don't even feel safe to go, other, go to other people, but we, can go, we feel safe when we go to the trained, paid therapist. Uh, that's the place where we go now to replace mom and dad and uncle and aunt and neighbors and other uh, mentors and forebears. Now let's juxtapose that with Christians who people are less and less likely to approach. The church, which people are less and less likely to approach, and again, here's a possible explanation. Not, I can't prove it. I think people have less, I know people have less and less exposure to Christianity. In some ways, much of Africa now is more Christianized than America. Uh, much of South America and South Asia are more Christianized than America, which is why all these places are now sending missionaries here. So pe- less and less are people actually acquainted with Christianity at all. But when they are, it usually leaves a bad taste in their mouth. A lot of people, now remember, still about three quarters of our country uses the label Christian. But we know, for, we, we know if you dig down at all, that probably only about a third of those at most are actually Christians. The rest just embrace the label. But that label's quickly going away, and we talked about this last year, because it now comes with a cost. If you live in the Seattle area and you're a Christian, it could cost you a job. And we're seeing that more and more, especially on the coast. And so that number is quickly going down. But nonetheless, three-quarters of our country have raised their kids in nominally Christian households without an ounce of grace permeating that household. 
So a lot of people have been raised with the name Christian, but have never known the grace of Jesus Christ in their home. And now they're burned out and disillusioned. In my unit, the people who are most likely to be antagonistic uh, to the gospel are actually not those people from the more post-Christian cultures, like like the Northeast or the West Coast. It's people from the Deep South who've been raised in an anomaly Christian home and have had the name all around them, the culture all around them, but have never known grace. So they think they know everything, and they're also mad about it. And those are usually the people who are most likely to, to come at me and be antagonistic about this. And the cool thing is a lot of them have since joined Chappy Hour, and I have a couple of those guys who I love to engage regularly. Uh, another piece, though. Again, lack of familiar, familiarity with Christianity. A lot of what people experience of Christianity is what they see in public what they see on TV. And what they have seen with Christians is as Christians have engaged in particular moral issues over the past couple decades, these moral issues have been rallying cries. They protest. They pass legislation. Whether or not Christians are actually engaging broken people from broken lifestyles, people don't see this. They see the protest. They see the marches. They see the activism. They see us rallying around the issues and not the people. Uh, and so they see, in a sense, another sort of, I guess you could say, fundamentalism or moralism in our culture that turns them off. All these things that they see makes them think that Christians and the church are not safe places to go. And we can question this assessment, definitely. We know for a fact that most Christians in evangelical circles, I mean, we have statistics, are the most, they donate more to charity than anyone else in our culture. Uh, they tend to spend more volunteer hours down the ground level than anyone else in our culture. And yet, this is the impression that's been conveyed. And we also have to say, you know, what part did we play in this? Because none of us are squeaky clean in this. But whatever the case, people feel much safer going to counselors than they do coming to church. Um, that's an issue too. And coming to us as Christians. So people want counseling. You remember last year, I gave you this one statistic of a poll I took on Facebook of soldiers. Uh, how many of you want to talk about uh, meaning, hope, purpose, existence, identity? How many of you like having those discussions? 97% of soldiers responded they want to have those discussions. Uh, again, the one person who voted no was my older brother who was in the 82nd, who somehow just likes, sometimes just likes to be, well, I'm not going to use the word, uh, also antagonistic uh, to his younger brother. Follow-up question, where do you want to have these sorts of conversations? Uh, In a church or chapel, or in a pub, coffee shop, uh, or home? And 84% said the latter. Pub, coffee shop, home. They don't feel safe in the church. Whether that fear is warranted or not, they don't feel that safety. But they do want to have these discussions. And who do they go to for these discussions nowadays? They go to counselors. They go to counselors. And brothers and sisters, you all can be those counselors. Not the paid professional types. If somebody's schizophrenic, you probably want to refer them to a, to a mental health provider. Uh, if they clearly need medicine, you might want to refer them. If they are an imminent threat for suicide, refer them. And this is important to know, even before we talk about counselors, if people are in danger... You always get them the help they need first. You need time. And so if somebody 
is at risk of suicide, you don't try to sit them down and counsel them. Uh, we perhaps get them checked into inpatient care and get them medicated. These things are not permanent fixes. They don't heal. They buy us time. But then where do you come in? Just as Jesus applied a scalpel to each of our hearts, we apply the scalpel to others' hearts. And we not only have biblical warrant for this, brothers and sisters, but a lot of psychologists recognize this as well. For example, uh, our brigade psych uh, over at JBLM, who just came in, she's a Christian, and she would agree with me with a lot of these assertions I'm about to make regarding psychology. Uh, The trendy form of psychology right now, of counseling, is called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. In essence, you tell people dissect their thought patterns. Your problem is not what you experience outside of you, it's the way you think about it. And they help you to change your thought process so that you're able to be more resilient. That's the basis of a lot of Army counseling. If you go to see mental health, we also have something called uh, MRT, Master Resiliency Training. Uh, Same principles. It's about changing your thought patterns. But one of the pioneers of this school of thought, when he wrote his book about it called Learned Optimism, an introduction, he said one of the reasons why we're seeing such mental health issues in our culture is because of the, of the decline of the spiritual furniture in our culture. He said these two things correspond. There's a decline in mental health and there's a decline in the spiritual furniture. And then because he's a psychologist, he never goes back to that point at all for the rest of his book. He never touches religion at all. But it's fascinating that in the introduction, he notices that relationship. Uh, Victor Frankl, I know this is a bit heady for the moment, but I think this is important for Atlanta Foundation. Victor Frankl was a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, he wrote an incredibly profound book uh, called Man's Search for Meaning. And he also was a psychologist, and he developed a school of thought called Logotherapy, which in essence said, at root, people's struggles are at the level of belief. It's not feelings and experiences. It's not just your background. It's not uh, just change your thought patterns. It's at the level of belief. He said the Nazis could do whatever they wanted to us in those concentration camps, but they didn't need to change our basic beliefs. If you still had a sense of meaning, you could be tortured and you could die and do so with dignity. In a sense, he departed from Freud and from Nietzsche in this way. Nietzsche talked about how at root all, all people were oriented toward power. Freud said all of us were oriented toward pleasure. And uh, Viktor Frankl said we are all oriented toward meaning. At the, at the base, at the root, we are all struggling with what our meaning is in this life. And that's what any psychologist has to address if he's going to affect, he or she is going to effectively counsel somebody, which doesn't often happen today. Uh, one other psychologist, I'm going to offer a number of quotes from him. But I want you to recognize, he doesn't see, this, this counselor here, Eric Fromm, a famous mid-century psychoanalyst, t- atheist. But think about our Christian categories. Uh, creating the image of God. Depraved. The tension we face as Christians and as people in this world, living in a Genesis, Genesis 3 world, but longing for a Genesis 1 world living under the fall, but knowing that something's missing. Every person feels this out there. And so Eric Fromm is describing the fundamental human dilemma. And talking about man, he says, he is set apart while being apart. He is homeless, yet chained to the home he shares with all creatures. The idea of being simultaneously home and homeless. 
You can hear, you hear creation and fall in that. He is the only animal that can be bored, that can be discontented, that can feel evicted from paradise. It is the contradiction in his existence that makes him proceed on the way he set out. Having lost paradise, the unity with nature, he has become an eternal wanderer. Can you see, like, these are all just faint shadows of biblical truths here. He must give an account of him, to himself of himself and of the meaning of his existence. He is driven to overcome this inner split, tormented by a craving for absoluteness, for another kind of harmony which can lift the curse by which he was separated from nature, from his fellow man, and from himself. Knowing our Christian categories, doesn't it feel weird to hear this from an atheist psychoanalyst? He makes the attempt to restore the unity and equilibrium in the first place in thought by constructing an all-inclusive mental picture of the world which serves him as a frame of reference from which he can derive an answer to the question of where he stands and what he ought to do. So he's trying to explain why people are religious. He says, well, we all create a religious system about, that gives us both an understanding of what we should believe about our place in this world and what we should do as a response uh, in order to deal with this world as a frame of reference. Sounds a little bit like that shorter catechism question, what does the Bible teach us? Uh, what to believe concerning God and the duty God require, duties God requires of man? See, it's, the scriptures teach us that because we all need that. And the Bible actually gives us that in true form. But all people are looking for that. And all people have answers to these questions, even if they don't know them. Devotion to an aim or an idea or a power transcending man such as God is an expression of this need for completeness in the process of living. One of the famous psychoanalysts of the past century. For the Bible... For Christians, all this fits squarely into place with the biblical understanding of this world. All that he just said. Here's why you feel split and tormented. Here's why you feel simultaneously at home in this world that God created good and why you also feel like an eternal wanderer. Uh, Here's why you create a belief system. Here's why you have a belief system because we are all religious and we, we all need a way of understanding this world in order to live in this world. It's so either you're going to have a true religion or you're going to have a false one, but you're going to have a religion nonetheless. This, and then the psychoanalyst, Eric Fromm, actually then goes on to say, and we actually have grounds to judge religious systems. Now, his grounds really suck, really stink, uh, in terms of judging religious systems. Uh, because he doesn't know how to analyze it, because he doesn't have any sort of explicit religious grounding here. But he says you can judge whether some systems are good or not, in a sense, by how people are reacting to it. So as a psychologist, if someone's religion is good, you will see the effects of it. If it's not, you won't. Now, that's not a sufficient grounds for us, but it, it, it does show that as counselors, too, I recognize this when I go into the counseling office. I have a right, and soldiers expect me, to engage their belief system and perhaps even critique it because it has brought them to my office. Usually, what they're, whatever they're believing, it ain't working. And that's why they're there. And they expect that from me. We have grounds to critique religious claims. For example, you're raised in a broken home. You've learned not to trust uh, parents, people in authority, love, relationships, all these things. You tend to assume the worst about the world. Your practical religion is probably nihilism. 
And now you're coming to my office because you're hopelessly heartsick and depressed. And, there's no, and you're incredibly lonely. There's no one around you to love you because you won't open up to anybody. Well, maybe that nihilism is not working. Let's go back and see how that was created. And let's take it apart and show why this isn't working. Why it's not an adequate explanation of this world. And why it is stunting your ability to live in this world. Do you guys see how that works? And so even psychoanalysts recognize a lot of psychoanalysts at least, we have a fundamental responsibility as we counsel other people to engage them at the religious level. And who is more qualified to do this than your simple, ordinary, everyday Christian? Now again, we can't prescribe meds. Uh, We can't keep people safe in the moment with suicide. There's a lot of things we can't do and are not competent to do. And some of that we need to leave off to others. But people want to be, have to be engaged at the religious level for you to effectively counsel somebody, and we can do that. Last year, we talked about basics, background, beliefs, and how, in terms of how we engage people. You never go straight at beliefs, because we're not just disembodied thoughts walking around. Uh, our thoughts have a story. Our beliefs come from somewhere. We have to engage all of that. But this is a fundamental calling for us as Christians, to counsel one another, and to counsel the stranger in our midst, to counsel the neighbor alongside of us. And we have the tools to do that. Now, before I go any further, are there any questions? Any thoughts? Yes, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. That is, well, Lindsay's cheering you on the whole time you're saying that. Because she, she told me specifically yesterday, make sure you remind people of this. Uh, are you vulnerable? And are you open to counseling? And do you, as well as offer counsel within the church? Uh, so, Charlie, without giving away specifics, in your own life, uh, do you receive counsel in this church? Yeah, I don't mind giving away specifics because that's, that's the whole point that I'm making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and being at this point a Christian for ten years, there's 
also mature Christians, people who have been warring their whole lives. And so I'm not an island. I am a part of a body, a brick in the wall of the house of the church, and I need to stand on somebody so that Christ would mature me that someone might stand on me later. Yeah. So it is hard. It is scary. Um, going back and looking at traumas and, and confessing them and admitting even my errors and my wrongs. And, but it's, it's necessary for sanctification and for reconciling these relationships that have been affected by Yeah. And the most important one being things that I have professed falsely about God because of things that happened. Yeah. So important. Thank you, Charlie. That is very helpful. And I've also seen you uh, counsel other people within the church. Uh, you receive counseling, and since that also makes you a better counselor, uh, Henry Nowen uses this term, wounded healer. Those who are best equipped to heal are those who are also wounded. And that's really important. And so, and that is actually going to be one of kind of my tie-off points here uh, with our lesson today. And Charlie, that was a wonderful segue. Uh, are you open to the scalpel care of God? And to the scalpel care of others. Yeah, brother. Earlier in the introduction, uh, you said that street preaching, I think you said, was useless today. Huh. And I was wondering that if, you know, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God mm. unto salvation to them who believe, yeah. both Jew and Gentile. And if that's what is preached, I wonder how that could be useless. All right, so if, if I said useless, I was speaking in extremes. Uh, it can still be absolutely used by the Lord. I don't think it's nearly as effective as it used to be because people don't respond well to, this, to the sales pitch on the street corner from a stranger. People respond a lot better to somebody they know and trust because most people don't trust people anymore. Uh, but absolutely, if you are preaching the word of God, it doesn't matter which venue you're doing it. If the word of God is being proclaimed, if it is being shared, it doesn't return void. That is, you're right, that is the power of God. So, that is, I'm just, it's a critique of one manner of presenting the gospel that can still absolutely be used. For example, and by way of comparison, I don't think tracks are necessarily the most effective way anymore, but they can still be used by the Lord. Uh, cold knocking on doors, I don't think is most, it gets back to last year. The rational apologist approach and the salesman evangelist approach, if, you, if the word of God is front and center, he, he, he absolutely will bless his word. But I think the actual manner that's often employed in those are not as effective as some others. No. I th- yeah, thank you. That's a good qualification, brother. Uh, no, we're talking about... So, there's no God-ordained manner of doing this. We don't all have to be street preachers, we, but some of you can be. And the Lord will, can and will absolutely bless the use of his word. Uh, the approach I'm offering is one that, in which you counsel hearts, uh, and you dig down into their deepest needs and expose their need for the gospel individually, which is more... more it takes more time involves more pain, more patience. Uh, but I think this, this mode is probably, in many cases, more uh, effective in taste culture. But again, I have good friends from seminary who still love to street preach. And that's their gifting, too. And I appreciate that. Does that, uh, does that get what you're getting at? I think so. Okay. Because I was wanting to hear you say that it's the power of the gospel itself that changes men's hearts. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just, it's always a good qualification. Uh, as you guys know, I tend to speak in generalities. It's helpful for talking points, but not for nuancing. Uh, I don't, there are certain approaches I don't think are as, as effective anymore. For example, being that rational apologist who's, you know, talking about the age of the earth, who's uh, 
trying to prove people to people scientifically why God must exist. I don't think some of these approaches are as effective, but in as much as you are utilizing the word of God, absolutely. In fact, like you could be absolutely making a mess of things. If you're using the word of God, he will still bless that. Yeah, Charlie. And both can be effective. It depends on your culture. It depends on uh, your audience. You, re- you have to relate in often cases. Often case, oftentimes, you will relate differently to, say, a southerner than to a northerner, an easterner to a westerner. Uh, across cultural lines, there's different ways of engagement that are more effective than others. And uh, it's important to be sensitive to that. But you raise a really good point, brother. Uh, the Lord absolutely can and will bless the use of his word in whatever context, in whatever venue. Uh, what we're getting at here is, in a sense, a contemporary approach for engaging people through counseling, recognizing in our culture the loss of the external constraints, the drive for everybody into the counseling office, and how we are uniquely equipped as Christians to engage this present moment and this present need uh, through our own counsel of others, just like we do in the church. Yeah? I think uh, what you're getting at... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted mm-hmm. by God. Amen. People, knowing that you identify with them, that you have gone through the same thing. A woman that's had an abortion can talk to other women about that. Guys who have killed in war can talk to guys about that and the, the traumas. Yeah. And that's what that's the message we need to get to that. I know you're hurting. I have been there. I've done that. Here's how I got through it, and you can too. Amen. And thank you. Uh, the one of the wonderful things I love about this fellowship is that everybody's ready to throw in great scriptures. I don't think you disagree with any of that, brother. I think you wanted me to properly nuance how I, I talk about, yeah. When you talk about meeting their needs and, and where they're at, mm-hmm. are you talking about meeting needs less than the need to be born again? No. Less than salvation? Well, are, are you talking about the gospel, which addresses every need, and God changes hearts, God meets all those needs through a faithful vessel? I'll take... All together, we want, to exp- we want to help them understand why it is they don't believe. Now, fundamentally, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? But how does that, what does that look like? For example, again, we talked about this last year. If you had an abusive father, does that shape your view of God and stand as a barrier 
And can we, in a sense, remove that barrier? Uh, this is what Machen would often talk about with uh, consecrating the culture. We're removing, in his day, it was more intellectual barriers to the gospel. Nowadays, it's more psychological. We're no longer in a plane of philosophy, which is where a lot of apologetics has happened in the past. Uh, it's more psychology, because people now think experientially rather than rationally. They've dethroned the God of reason and, and replaced it with the God of experience, both of which are idols. And so this is how I think we dethrone the God of experience uh, and more effectively engage them with the gospel. Help uncloud their view. Uh, so with regard to our approach in our own hearts, and we have a couple more minutes left, we ourselves need to be ready and willing to receive counsel ourselves. Whether it's counseling from a paid professional, whether it's counseling from uh, the session here in the church, whether it's uh, counseling from one another, we must be ready and willing and vulnerable enough to receive that from each other. Last year, we talked about how healthy worship precedes healthy fellowship. Healthy fellowship precedes healthy outreach. We cannot go out there and effectively be vulnerable, be vulnerable with people and love other people if we're not first doing that here. This is our proving grounds. And so that is vital uh, to this whole enterprise. Uh, so why this is more important than ever right now, the Christian as counselors to our culture. Uh, so professional counseling is surging because the common and communal counseling that we often experience growing up is dying. You're no longer getting those external supports, and so people are going to counselors to help reorder their lives and make sense of them. Fundamentally, they want to have their religious beliefs engaged, and who is more competent to do that than Christians who know the truth uh, from Scripture? So the needs are more pronounced than ever, with fewer resources than ever. Our mental health resources at JBLM are always, always overtaxed. Uh, I've counseled 30-plus people in a week before. And you are uniquely qualified to engage and care at the religious level and to offer community. One of the things I often do with folks is invite them to church, too, where you not only hear truth from the pulpit, but then have it reinforced to you horizontally from side to side from people within the pews. Uh, what this means for you right now, as uh, Charlie was really getting at, you need to be open to counsel from the Lord, from the session, from fellow believers, even at times from non-believers. Uh, but you have to be open to counsel yourself. Enough of the privacy culture, and that's very pronounced up here in the Northwest, just like it is in the Midwest. Uh, it takes a village. Christ saved us into a church, not simply as individuals, uh, and we need to practice that. Uh, you also need to be emotionally self-aware and comfortable discussing backgrounds and beliefs. So if, if you haven't taken that deep plunge with yourself, we've got to address that. First of all, the gospel is only half known to you if you have not done that deep plunge yourself. Because the gospel addresses our brokenness. It addresses our background. It addresses the abuse, the divorce, the heartache, the abandonment, the neglect. And a lot of times, we come here and, not here, but, Christians go to church, and they hear a good gospel message, and aren't thinking, well, how does the gospel apply to my background? How does it heal my hurts? And that's something that Pastor Brett has uh, called me on, that Chaplain Fari has called me on. Uh, Stephen, you're very good with, uh, with the explanations. How about actually experiencing it? Uh, you talk about how God had a purpose in your past, but you have not let the gospel really permeate the brokenness of your past. And so I've been caught on the mat for that, and I still need to. I'm still working through that, but that's an important piece. We profess that Jesus is Lord, the power of the gospel, 
and yet we don't let Jesus engage like our, our, deeper, our, our deepest struggles. Uh, it needs to be spoon-fed into the depths of our hearts. Uh, here's your comfort. This has made these current trends, the mission field, incredibly clear and accessible. There is no better time right now, in my opinion, to be a Christian than right now in American history. Because right now, a lot of the clutter is being blown away. The name of Christian is, is being discarded by a lot of people who never really believed it. You're going to continue to see that plummet, as we talked about last year, of the people who call themselves Christians. More and more, you're seeing the battle lines drawn in a really good and healthy sort of way, where you can more effectively engage not movements, not blocks of people, but individuals in a very clear and accessible way. God has given you all the gifts uh, you need to be an integral part of this effort. You are part of the body of Jesus Christ. We all need each other, and we all can support each other and be effective in this activity. All of us are called to counsel, whatever our gifts and our personalities are like. Uh, This is something we're all called to do both in the church and outside the church, and God has gifted you for that. Uh, And finally, Jesus engaged in the same ministry. He died for this very reason. And his Holy Spirit, by the way, is very persuasive. That's why we call it irresistible grace. But this is how Jesus would engage people. Whether you talk about the rich young ruler or the woman at the well, Jesus was constantly applying the scalpel to people's hearts in an intimate way, digging at those deep sin and suffering struggles and laying them bare and saying, here is your idol, here's your religion. Is it sufficing? A key part of Jesus engaging people is taking that scalpel to the human heart and unearthing those things and then bring the gospel to bear. And that's what we're going to be talking about in coming weeks. We're going to talk about connecting the past and the present and why it's so important to rake through the past in the name of Jesus with the power of the gospel why we need to unearth that hidden religion uh, that everybody lives by. Everybody has a hidden religion. We often do, too. Tim Keller really gets at this with counterfeit gods. We profess faith in Jesus, but we often bow the knee on a practical basis, on an everyday level, uh, with two other things, to love, to money, to success, to approval, whatever. We want to examine these hidden religions in us and in others and expose their faults and the fact that they're not working. Uh, they're not true, they're not meaningful. And then it's there that we're able to most effectively make the case for Christianity. Only the Bible makes sense of this broken world. Only the gospel offers hope in the midst of the rubble. And then finally we'll talk about how we're servants, not the Savior. We've got to be content with planting seeds, with removing objections, with addressing some basic questions, and then moving on. We are not the savior people's souls. Uh, and that's going to be what, one of the things that offers you a lot of comfort, uh, recognizing that you're going to probably, God, the Lord's going to use you to play one small piece in this, you know, some water, some sow. Uh, and then the Lord will handle that person from then on out. And so we'll get more into that too. So I'll stop there. Any, let's say we have a minute or two left. Do you have any final questions? All right, so if you do have any more questions, feedback, well, let's talk offline about that. Let me say a quick word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful uh, that we have not only been saved by you and comforted by the gospel, but that this has been done, as my dear brother mentioned, so that we can then 
extend that comfort to others. As wounded healers, where they can come to us with their wounds, we can show them our own and say, hey, we have a God who knows wounds, both how to bear them and how to bind them. Help us to to effectively, faithfully engage others with the gospel in this way, uh, both within the church and outside the church, to the glory of your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.